Let's turn to scripture then, to Matthew uh, chapter 13, verses 24 to 52. I preached um, relatively recently on, on the book of Jonah, and we looked several times at the little verses about Jonah and Matthew, so for that reason, I thought I would read the next book of Matthew today, Matthew chapter 13. Verse 24. Uh, just before our reading, there is the parable of the sower. It's really part of the same section, but we're not going to read that uh, parable and its explanation. We're going to pick up verse 24 with the parable of the weeds. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? The weeds, that is. But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, or yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables, indeed he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father, he who has ears. Let him hear. 
The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the deep and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw the bad fish away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Amen. Uh, let's just pray momentarily. We thank you, Lord, that these words recorded by Matthew, these words of the Lord Jesus Christ, have stood the test of time. They are as true today as when you, Lord Jesus, first uttered them. And so help us to receive them as those disciples did, understanding them and seeing their implication for us. For your name's sake, Amen. Well, I want to begin with um, a little section which I've called Orientation. That is orientation within this section of Matthew, because clearly we have just dropped ourselves into this passage today, but I want to just uh, help us get our feel for what is going on here in Matthew's Gospel. We have six parables, weeds, well, we have the one that we didn't read, the sower, and then we have the wheat, the mustard seed, the yeast, the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price, and the net. Seven parables, one after the other after the other. But there is yet another parable. It's so short and so mysterious that we may not even notice it. Look at verse 52 again, the parable of the master of the house. Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out from his store old and new treasure. And that parable, tucked in just at the end of the chapter, is key, I think, to what Matthew is wanting us to understand from the section as a whole. Verse 52, that little parable at the end of the reading is key. Also key, if you turn back please to verse 17 of the chapter, which we didn't read, you will see another hint at what the big point of this uh, section 
of Matthew is all about. For I tell you the truth, says Jesus, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see today, but did not see it. And they longed to hear what you hear today, but they did not hear it. Matthew is explaining to his largely Jewish readership that the coming of the Lord Jesus was the turning point of all human history. And the coming of the Lord Jesus as Savior and Messiah in the flesh was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises which the people of Israel had known and taken to be the scriptures of the people of God. And Matthew is particularly interested in writing to people from that background, from Israel, to help them to see who Jesus is. That he is not a, a surprise who has just dropped into history out of nowhere, but he is the fulfillment. See in verse 17, Jesus is saying to them, all the prophets, all the teachers longed to see Messiah's day. And they didn't. They died first, but you are seeing Messiah's day. And verse 52, all the teachers going forwards need to be like masters of a house who are able to bring old and new treasures out into the open. The truths of God from the Old Testament era and the truths of the Gospel era which are the fulfillment of the old. Now there are many other parables and teachings in this kind of theme. You know, we can't put a, a new patch of cloth onto an old garment and all. It's the same kind of message. The Old Testament promises of God lead to the coming of the Lord Jesus. And the coming of the Lord Jesus opens up a new era in human history. That is where Matthew is thinking in, in that theme. Now, just before we go into a little bit more detail, I want us to look slightly further yet before what we've read and slightly further after. Before and after once more. Look at chapter 12, 46 to 50. Chapter 12, 46 to 50. Just before this great big long chapter full of all these kingdom parables. Verse 46, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And Jesus replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Something radically new is taking place. There is a shift in emphasis as Jesus says those words which are catastrophic sounding, presumably, to his family. And then look just after chapter 13, look this time at, uh, uh, no, not after chapter 13, the end of chapter 13, verses 53 to 58. Chapter 13, verses 53 
to 58, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there, coming to his hometown. You see, we're back now in this family setting. He began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this just the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. You see, right before all the parables of the kingdom, this shift from family biological to God's family, and right afterwards, this underlining that this teaching of Jesus, where does it come from? And he is saying to them, I am not just Mary's son. And they take huge offense. And the, the kingdom parables in between are the stuff of massive offense when people hear them and understand what is being meant. So there's our little bit of orientation, the big picture of what Matthew is saying here. Next, a little section of recognition. Given that Jesus' teaching is offensive to his family and hearers and is cutting through centuries of assumed religious teaching in Israel and establishing something new. Given all of that, we have to recognize that these parables, eight of them in total, are not, Matthew is helping us to see with his bracketing, are not little moral tales to help us live well. They are not visual aids to help children understand the gospel. That is not how Matthew's presenting them. They are not very complicated theological truths that we can only understand with the help of an illustration. But all these parables are plain historical realities in the growing and fulfillment and ultimate coming of the kingdom of God in this world. These parables collectively and individually provide a massive injection of gospel turbulence in the world and in Jesus' family and in his hometown and amongst his listeners. These parables cause religious disruption and lead to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. This teaching of Matthew chapter 13 causes cultural upheaval wherever it is taught in the world. As Jesus speaks, and teaches the realities of his kingdom, the world is being hit by a tsunami 
of subversive, pervasive change that Jesus alone can bring into this world. And the change he brings leads to permanent separation of people, good from evil, and lasting justice and joy in a new and permanent kingdom of God. The parables are nothing less than that message being brought home to the ears of those who hear them. We have to recognize that. This is what Matthew clearly wants us to see very plainly. He lays out the chapter with that introduction of family life being disrupted and the uh, conclusion of life in Nazareth being, being disrupted and broken and fractured into people uh, hating what is going on. He lays the teaching out with this little parable of the master of the house at the end specifically to help us to see and recognize that this is the kind of teaching Jesus is giving. So we've had orientation in the chapter, we've got recognitions, hopefully we can see what kind of um, material the chapter contains. Thirdly, application. One uh, main application from the chapter as a whole. When Jesus says to the disciples, you notice that halfway through the reading he drew away from the crowds, went into the house and starts to speak just to his disciples. When Jesus uh, says to his disciples, a tiny little parable at the end of the passage, that every a scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven, he's speaking to the twelve, to the disciples. Have you twelve understood these things? He's saying, have you got it? Yes, 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 they say to him, and he says, well, every one of you and every teacher who's been trained for my kingdom has to understand that you bring out treasures of old and new, and you have to understand the implication of doing so. You twelve, he is saying, if you're trained to be kingdom teachers, will cause, just as my words cause, huge division and disruption in the world, as well as huge growth of my heavenly Father's kingdom. Every teacher of the law must bring out old and new. Now, what was Jesus trying to get through to his disciples there? What is this thing that every teacher has to be able to be older than you. Let's dig slightly more deeply into that. And I want us to do that by thinking about two extremes. The extreme of Jesus' day in terms of people who were all about the old, were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the people whose religious empire that they had built up in the teaching of the Old Testament was being very deeply threatened uh, by all that Jesus was saying, but there are modern day examples of that as well. I had a flatmate at university who was a Seventh-day Adventist. We shared very, very similar views of the gospel. We worshiped the Lord Jesus. He would never have heard talk of there being another savior, etc., etc. Our very core gospel truths were the same. But I remember discovering in 18, 19, 20, as I shared halls in the flat with him, that their whole perspective was old, Old Testament, 
worship on a Saturday and um, no, no pork or um, food from the sea that didn't have scales and so on and so on. Loads of Old Testament stuff in their churches and in their lives that kind of left me scratching my head. Why, why, why are they looking back to the Old Testament in all these ways? And the answer is, like the scribes of Jesus day, they do not get this idea of fulfillment. They want to read the laws of Leviticus in exactly the same way as they want to read the book of Acts or the book of Revelation. It's all flattened out into the same Bible material without any recognition that there is a, a sweep of history in the Bible with fulfillment and change in the middle of it, leading to fulfillment and change again at the end of the age. They, they didn't get that. And that's what happens when people tip only to the old. Think of the extreme versions of people who only teach the new. Think of the more extreme forms of Pentecostalism, or the more extreme forms of charismatic theology that want everything to be about the now, the new, and there's no recognition of the foundations of the gospel. I used to privately and a little bit publicly describe a group of people who'd come to our church over several years from various charismatic fellowships as our charismatic rehabilitation unit. Because, and I remember saying to them, one of them after a few weeks of being in church, how, how are you finding being with us? And they said, oh, it's such a relief. Every Sunday, there's nothing new anymore. Because every Sunday in their former fellowship, there had to be a new thing that we were all doing, and another new thing, and a new thing, and a new thing. Whereas Jesus' parables are all just telling us to keep doing the same thing. Sow the seed, and the kingdom will come. The Old Testament has been fulfilled. Jesus is here. He died. He rose. He's waiting to come again. Keep speaking his words. You don't need another new thing. That's the last thing before the very last thing. And I think if we look at those two extremes that we might experience in, in our Christian lives, it helps us to understand, I think, what Jesus was saying to his disciples. You twelve have to go and be my disciples and be teachers of the kingdom, showing that my coming is the fulfillment of the ages. The faithfulness of God's promises have been kept, and my second coming is what we now must point people to, and they will not like either of it, either bit of it. Old and new treasures, that's what you must teach, I think. Matthew's big application point is that, that we must have, if we are going to live as Christian people in this world, a solid and secure understanding that Christ is the promised Messiah, there is none other, and he will come again, and we serve that kingdom until he does. It feels like stating the obvious, but the church and we believers lose that from one week's end to the next. So that's the application. Jesus says, and Matthew shows us that he says, do not be people who 
teach only one part, but be people who teach and show what real life in my kingdom, which I have come to fulfill and to bring about, is like. You live as those who understand that. That's the application. Now, there are three last points of what I want to call the reorganization of our lives in the light of that. And here I'll pick up just briefly on some of the parables that Jesus uh, mentions. Kingdom life looks exceedingly messy. That's my first one, reorganization. We like kingdom life to be exceedingly tidy with neat edges and everything organized and people all believing the right things and doing the right things and living in the right way. And then we like some people from time to time to be neatly converted, to neatly fit into our neat kingdom existence. And Jesus says it's just not like that because the seed is sown and there are loads of wheat and loads of weeds all growing up together because in the church we are meant to be rubbed out into the world all the time like salt and light. We're not called to live in a monastery. We're called to live in a messy, fallen, sin-sick world and we ourselves are battling with sin all the time too. And there are weeds and wheat all tumbling around together. And in the parable the servants say, well, fine, let's go and pull the weeds up. And what a liberation it is to hear Jesus say, no, don't do that, because you'll just pull up the wheat as well. So liberation, particularly if, like me, you have spent hours and hours of your life roguing wheat in the scorching sun with a bag of damp, stinking, disease-ridden weeds on your back, covered in slime and yuck day after day after day, the only person in a field, uh, feeling as if you've been making no progress. What a liberation. We are not to pull the weeds up. That will happen at the end of the age, and until that day, just crack on, sowing seed, and just crack on, and pray for the work of the Spirit as you go. The world and the church are far more enmeshed together than we often like. And that often feels very hard. Because as we go along, living for the kingdom and serving the king, there are huge disappointments along the way. When a believer decides, a professing believer decides to abandon his family and they end up, as far as we can tell, out with the church. That's really messy. Or when a believer decides that um, he's now going to believe some new or different teaching and that all has to be worked through in fellowship or whatever it is. It's so messy. But Jesus says, just keep sowing the seed. I want you to be in this messy world because a new world is coming. That's the point. We can cope with the mess. We can cope with the weeds. We can cope with the bad fish coming into the net because 
Jesus' angels will sort it all out one day, and he knows who is who and what is what. And this is not a unique bit of teaching in the New Testament, is it? You know, think of Jesus saying, saying that uh, about all the people who uh, say, Lord, Lord, did I not do this and that and the other for your kingdom? And he says to them, depart from me and I never knew you. He's the one who can see through the mess. He's the one who knows what is what. But you just sow the seed. The parable of the sower at the beginning of the chapter is just along those lines. It's so, it could be, were it not for the end result, hugely discouraging because some seed grows so quickly and looks wonderful, but there are no roots or the birds snatch it away or the, the weeds come in and all the rest of it. But Jesus says, keep doing the same thing. That's what life in my kingdom is like. It's really messy, but keep doing it. Secondly, and this only makes sense because of the, the, the messiness, but number two, kingdom life looks exceedingly ineffective. Kingdom life looks exceedingly ineffective. All we can do is sow. We can pop in a bit of yeast. We can take this tiny mustard seed that looks like a nothing and stick it in the ground. That's all we can do. And Jesus says you have to do that understanding that I am able to turn that mustard seed into a vast tree which can hold the birds from all over the world in its branches. It looks ineffective. It isn't ineffective. But it can seem that way. And so bit by bit by bit in the, the situation where we're in amongst the weeds of the world all the time, we sow the seed, we give the salty, sharpish comment and watch for the, the comeback. We say to someone, I'd be more brokenhearted if my child left Jesus and his church than I would if anything else happened to him. That's seed sowing. That's salty, because nobody else thinks like that. I used to say to my kids, I'm on principle never going to help you with your homework, because I don't mind if you're a bin man or a professor. And probably I prefer you to be a bin man in the matter. But what I do mind is that you follow Jesus. So I never help them with their homework. Because <laughs> I wanted them to believe that. I'd never come in with more kind of children in pockets. Or if someone says to you, oh, we need to be affirming of all beliefs and all cultures and welcome this inclusive world, this kind of talk, which can sound so wonderful but is actually so ridiculous. And you can say, well, I don't want to be affirming of everything. I don't want to be affirming of a culture that still carries out FGM. I don't want to be affirming of that. I want to be against that. Are we allowed to be against anything anymore? Is that permissible? I don't want to be affirming of our culture and its gross materialism. I don't want there to be equal rights for all. That's why we have a system where prisoners lose some of their rights. That makes people think because humans, nobody, nobody says anything to these vague statements. But we can because we're kingdom workers and we understand the end result. One day Jesus will sort it all out. 
our politicians will never be able to sort it all out, but 12 frightened men heeding these words of Jesus became the global Christian church that we know today. So who do we believe? What Jesus says, that it might look ineffective and just like a tiny mustard seed that you can hardly even see, but in, in God's will it is effective. Thirdly and finally, kingdom life looks like, looks as if an extreme priority has taken over our mind, heart, and soul. It looks like that because that is what has happened. Did you see the repeated phrase in the two parables? The man with the, the, the field and the man with the pearl. He sold everything he had. Treasure in a field. He quickly covers it up. And then he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. That's an extreme thing to do. And the man finds one pearl of great value. And he went and sold all that he had so he could bought it. He had nothing else left now. No food, no house, anything at all. But he had his pearl. That's an extreme position to take, isn't it? That's Jesus' point. That something has taken over my mind, my heart, my soul to the extent that nothing else measures up to it. Everything else is just dust and ashes compared to being in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a perverse aim to die without a penny left in my bank account because there's a bit of me that just wants to make sure that with everything that I have in ways that are even relatively responsible, I'm, I won't, like Jesus could come back tomorrow. I could die tomorrow. I want, I want what I am and what I have to be used for his kingdom. Do not store up for yourselves treasure in this world where, anyway, moths and rust and thieves just, it all falls to bits and disappears anyway. Like, all, like that. Everything that the hunt was bought in Ikea yesterday will fall to us <laughs> in about three years' time maximum if the dog doesn't destroy it first. It all goes the same way into the skip and onto Gumtree. And none of it matters. Like it's useful for a while, but none of it matters. The perspective that we have is so different. That's what these treasure in the field and pearl of great price, he sold everything he had because he had seen something of infinitely greater worth. And then he reorganized his life in the light of it. It's very challenging, isn't it? And kingdom living is not. It's nothing to do with just having a kind of cosy evangelical version of, you know, modern friendship clubs and, you know, we're not the kind of church equivalent of the Black Hole Horticultural Society or something. It, it, it just cuts against so much. It is utterly different. And these parables, when Jesus had to be rejected in his own hometown, and point out to his mother and brother and sisters that 
His kingdom was ultimately not about them. It was about people who did the will of God. These were hard things for Jesus to point out. But they're worth pointing out because that's just the reality of what kingdom life is like. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, guard our hearts, we pray. It really, truly does only take six days before we lose perspective in this world. We're thankful that we can meet together, that we can unlearn the sharp, penetrating words scripture, your words to enter our minds and hearts, particularly when we sit together under them. We pray that by your spirit you give us humble hearts to receive them, but also that you give us joyful hearts and minds as we look ahead with absolute certainty the eternal kingdom which you alone are building and will build and will complete. All glory to you, Lord Jesus.